America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. The soldier is the army. No army is better than its soldiers. The soldier is also a citizen. In fact, the highest obligation and privilege of citizenship is that of bearing arms for one's country. George S. Patton. Episode 16, The Vandela's American Story. On today's episode, my guests are Tiffany and Trey Vandela. Welcome to the both of you. I'm so happy and honored that you have chosen to be here with me. It means a lot. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Can you start with us by sharing the beginnings of your stories? Maybe share with us a little bit about your family growing up, where you grew up, and then how, when, where, all the nitty gritty of when you two met? Well, I'll start. So I grew up over by Riverton, Wyoming. I grew up in a single white trailer house. Um, My mom and my dad worked really hard, but we didn't have a lot. Um, So I lived there my whole high school, middle school, elementary, and it was a really good place to grow up. Uh, But I knew that I wanted to get out and I wanted to get an education because that's the only way that I saw that I could make a road for myself. And I got a scholarship to go to Black Hill State on a a volleyball scholarship. And I did that for about a year and then I transferred to the University of Wyoming. And that's where I did my undergrad degree. And that is where my life intersects with Trace. What brought you to that point, Trey? Start us off. To the point where I intersected with her? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up middle class. I, I, uh, my dad was military, so I was an army brat. So uh, I ended up, long story short, joining the family business. And uh, I met Tiff after my first 18 month tour to uh, Iraq. And she was my cousin. It was her best friend. Um, My two sisters are farther in age from me than my cousin was. She was more of a sister than my sisters were. So when I came back from that first 18 month tour in Iraq, uh, I was told I had to go on leave. I was kind of married to my work, so I didn't really want to go on leave. But my first sergeant made me go on leave, so I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna go to my cousin's place in uh, Laramie, Wyoming for a couple, I was only planning on being there for a couple days, maybe five days at the most. Uh, then I met Tiff. Uh, she walked in after a run, and I was eating a sandwich. And my <laughs> my cousin said, "Hey Trey, this is my best friend Tiffany." And I stood up, and you know, eighteen month in Iraq, you kind of first good looking girl you see, you get knocked on your feet, kind of. <laughs> so I thought I was cool with the ladies, but not so much. All I all I said was hi, and that was it. Which I thought was kind of funny because I was excited. Oh my gosh, it's my best friend's, you know, cousin. He's a hero. 
I just love people in general. So I was really excited to meet him. And then I was a little put off, like, <laughs> oh, okay. Hello. And <laughs> wouldn't talk. Did you join the service as soon as you graduated high school? Yeah, I was uh, in that delayed entry program. So I joined when I was 17. And technically, I was 16 when I first went in the office. And, uh, you know, 9-11 hadn't hit, hit yet. That was 1997. So I was the only walk-in in the state of Utah for that month. So <laughs> that, that was a little bit odd. And then I went to basic training a month after I graduated high school. I loved it. I, I thought I was only going to do it for like four years. Uh, my first morning in basic training when I woke up to my, one of my bunk mates getting yelled at by every drill sergeant there was. For <laughs> some reason, that sunk in my head that, man, I love this. Did you have any reservations about joining that young? That's scary. Oh, like I said, it's family business. I, I grew up. Every time I had to do a report on anything history or anything like that, I always chose my dad. He was, you know, he did my job. He was uh, in recon and in uh, Vietnam. And then he progressed his career through the 80s and 90s. But he was my hero, I guess. You know, I didn't really think of having heroes when I was a kid. But I guess if we look back at it, yeah, he was my hero. And he's the guy I always did reports on. So for me, if, if other avenues weren't looking too grand, then uh, I just kind of was like, you know what? The easy thing for me, like, I don't know, like a lot of people think it's hard, but for me, it was like the easy choice. Like, hey, my dad did it. If he can do it, I mean, I can do it. I think the whole thing sounds scary. Moving away from home at that early age and the mental and the physical gruel they put you through. Oh my goodness. I don't think that I could do it. I know I could do it. I was ready for the move away from home. The way I was raised by my dad was always, you know, you go off on your own, you learn how to live life yourself without depending on others. Also through his rehab and even through his injuries, I, he has the most mental toughness that I've ever seen. You have to, of, don't you? You do. A lot of the things that he does, like he's hurting all the time or he doesn't feel good most of the time, but you would never know. Like you wouldn't know unless he told you. And so I wouldn't be able to do it and continue on. Like I won't work out if I don't feel good, but he'll keep going. So know? there's no working out with COVID or you feel good enough because you worked out this morning. I did. Well, I, I have worked out. Yes. Okay. Did you join the, the army then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you said, was your first deployment to Iraq? Uh, my first deployment on the global war on terrorism was to Iraq. What was that like? You're uh, so young. That had to have been eye-opening in so many different ways. A different culture, the circumstances, the climate. I mean, what was that like for a young kid? Well, I mean, I, I didn't look at myself as that young. I guess I was. But uh, I was a sergeant first class by the time I deployed the first time. You know, How young, old were you? Uh... 24. Okay, 24. and the sergeant first class, that's that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, but the first, my first tour to Iraq was actually a year prior to that. I did a six-month tour. The one that I met Tiff after was my first 18-month tour. 
Uh, and the, the six month tour was just to do, it wasn't even to do recon stuff. It was first cab was sending their aviation regiment for the initial attack into, into Iraq. And they needed some volunteers to do what they call it, like the search and rescue stuff. If, if an aircraft was to go down. So I volunteered me and some of my guys. <laughs> I'm sure they love that. But I volunteered them to, to go and do that. And really all we did was sit on the tarmac for probably 95% of all the goings-ons that was happening there. So that was kind of an easier break into the whole combat realm. You know, you got to hear it on the radio and you got to see what was coming back from, you know, if something got hit or whatever, you got to see it coming back. And then uh, we got the one five percent of the time that we got to get up in the helicopter, and Apache uh, got shot down, and so did we. <laughs> it definitely takes a different mentality. I can tell already. He's over there laughing about it, and I'm thinking that just sounds petrifying. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was, but like my fear more than anything was that I'd been a sergeant first class probably for two years at this point and I was in charge of everybody except for two guys in this 18-man uh, recon platoon and my biggest fear was uh, losing somebody like if I screwed up on a mission or if I got hit or something like that I didn't care like I didn't give that a thought for me it was I guess it's kind of selfish I didn't want to have to live with the fact that I was in charge of somebody and I lost him. Luckily that didn't ever happen, so. Hey, you guys met then after the 18 month deployment? Yeah, I came back. That one was only six months, that one was. Okay. And then then they pulled us off because in a few months we were going and then I went for 18 months and uh, came back and. I had no clue there were even deployments that long. That's insane. You guys meet and then what happens? So I was graduating uh, from the University of Wyoming, and then I was going to physical therapy school in North Dakota. So I was going up to North Dakota, and Trey went back to Fort Hood. And it's kind of funny because when we met, Trey was all in, but I had uh, had some really bad relationships. So had he, but I was kind of like, I'm done with guys in general. I'm going to go do me. I'm going to be a professional and then we'll see where life. So he left and I guess, I don't know. He says this. I don't remember. I said, don't call me. Oh, I'll yeah. call you. <laughs> Everything that normally would like give me a, would put me off to any girl. <laughs> he did. But that was the kicker. Like normally I'd been like, okay, whatever. I'm moving on. I'm going to go not worry about you. So I went my way. He went his and we saw a few um, of each other a few times in the summer. And then when I got up to the university of North Dakota, he wanted to come up and get me settled in because I really hadn't been out of the state much by myself. And I had moved like 12 times up at that, to that point. And so I, at that point, was like, well, nothing's going to happen. Like, it's, we're friends, you know. And so he's like, it's fine. And so he just was a good guy. Like, he wanted to be around me for me and not for things that he could get. 
And so that's, I think, when I really was like, okay, this guy's serious. And he came and got me all settled in and then went back to Texas. And then that's when we dated for a while. And then we got engaged that December. Yeah, she's skipping over a lot of good information. <laughs> first of all, the first time she sees me after she tells me not to uh, ever call her, ever. <laughs> uh, I wake up the next morning, go to my Jeep, because I had to charge my cell phone in my Jeep, because I had a Rottweiler and he ate my charger. I know that sounds stupid, but that's what happened. And I had a, about 400 messages saying, I'm in Waco, and you have two hours to see me. I'm like, what? I didn't even know you were coming to Texas. And then she like, Waco from me was like an hour away, so I had like 10 minutes. And then I show up there, and she has all her family are trying to peek out the door to look at me to see who this new mystery man is and she's like slamming the door on their face <laughs> no and then she's like get in the car i don't want them to see you i'm like what like what what is going on here she's already ashamed of me <laughs> and then the first time after that that she came down to actually see me and not have a family reunion the only thing she wanted she had 12 hours she literally had 12 hours we flew her down we stayed in the hotel in the at the airport in dallas and the next day she had 12 hours until her flight out and the first thing and only thing she wanted to do and this normally scares most guys away is she wanted to look at wedding rings like that was technically our second date ish ish <laughs> so she's kind of crazy i thought you were playing it tough tiffany it doesn't sound like you were well initially i was <laughs> And then, you know, it was really cool though. I think it was a unique um, thing for us because we got to talk on the phone so much. You know, we did long distance and we talked for hours, even if, so it was just probably just sitting on the phone while I did homework. She would study. <laughs> and if I like went to the bathroom, she'd freaked out. Where are you? <laughs> yeah, so it was really good. And I just had, I think you know when you found your person regardless of what your previous thoughts were, you know, I was just not going to do it. And um, just who Trey is, and he's so selfless. And he is really, he cares about people. And uh, I fell in love with who he was. And so I knew I wanted to be with him. And so when I know what I want, I want it. And she goes crazy. <laughs> your relationship develops. It does. And it's yep. blossoming. What happens next? Uh, now it's deployment time for me. Uh, I was home for about a year and four months. And so we had to make use of all our time. And, uh, so I asked her to marry me the first Christmas that we spent together because I knew it like for me, I knew the, I'd seen my dad do it. And then I was obviously doing it in the deployment cycle. You don't have time to screw around. Like she said, if you find something that you want or that you like, you got to go after it. <laughs> so for me, I searched far and wide for the perfect ring. And then that Christmas, I asked her to marry me. And it took her about an hour to say yes. Not true. <laughs> While I was sitting with my knee in the snow in the middle of Wyoming. <laughs> but she uh, finally says yes. And then... Uh, Oh, by the way, she introduced me to her mom that right before I asked her to marry me. The day before I asked her to marry me, 
she introduced me to her mom as, this is my friend. <laughs> Which had me starting to freaking think about whether or not I was going to out thousands of dollars. But obviously it worked out great. Yeah. But we get into the deployment cycle, which is a lot of training. So Tiff got a little bit of practice on what it would be like when I did deploy and wasn't able to talk to her all the time. I couldn't talk to her while she was studying. So deployed, I don't know, three times on a month long training. And then I got to see her for two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks before, directly before I deployed. Went on leave, went to my mom's house. She got to meet my crazy family. And we went to San Diego and then back to Fort Hood and it was time to deploy. So for me, this was scheduled to be another 18 month uh, tour. However, it didn't reach full maturity. So this is where you um, experienced your traumatic injuries. Yes. Um, I don't ever want to make it feel uncomfortable. Feel free to share what you want. I tell you everything, every detail. Well, let's start the story by first off. So I, um, I had never been really part of a military family before. I didn't really understand what deployment, I mean, I knew what it was, but I, I don't know. I was pretty naive on the whole process. I just knew he was going to be gone. But that morning of February 7th, he called me, which was pretty rare. Um, and we got to talk for the morning a little bit and he said, well, I just don't want you to worry because I'm going to be gone. So if you don't hear from me, um, don't, don't worry. And we talked a little bit and I felt bad now or at the time, cause I had to cut it short cause I had to get to class. So this was the day of the injury. The day before. And so he went on the mission and I was sitting in class, which I'm not a very anxious person. I I mean, I don't feel anxiety, I don't get panic attacks, but I was sitting in class and all of a sudden <clears throat> I couldn't breathe. Like it was heavy. I thought, what in the world is going on? Like what's happening? So I had just removed myself from class, went to the bathroom, got a drink and thought, boy, that was super weird. And that was just really weird. And at the same time, so this is actually when Trey was- That hit. would have been about two o'clock in the morning my time. Right, so that's when he got hit. And so I will... What year is this, by the way? 2007, February 7th of 2007. Okay. Um, You know what, that's really interesting because Colonel Gatson, who I did the interview with, he experienced his traumatic injuries in May of 2007. I can tell you why, too. He said it was a very bloody time in Iraq. Uh, If you want to get crazy, I can give you... Insight. Let's get crazy. All right. So the election cycle before then was uh, went from one party, we won't say who, was all in charge, had been in charge of, of the government, and then it flipped. And the very first thing the new party did once they took over, which would have been in January of, of 2007, was they froze funding for additional armor onto vehicles. MRAPs, which are the mine-resistant, ambush-proof vehicles, ammo and fuel. So those four things got froze for a month. So everything was in short supply. There was nothing. Everything was in short supply. And then they only released two of those, the ammo and fuel, after that first month. And for another five months, the other two things, the the MRAPs and the 
it's called Frag Five kits that go on to the vehicles that adds additional armor onto them. Uh, those got froze until the end of July. Uh, so if you ever look at a, a, a wounded chart, you'll see that it spikes larger than any other time between February and July of 2007. So there's the background of that. Um, for me, I was in the, I was actually in the middle of the Al Jazeera desert, which is a big 500 square mile chunk of desert in the middle of Iraq. And I got pulled out. Somebody up higher had the awesome decision to tell us that we were no longer allowed to drive anywhere except for hardball surfaces, meaning paved roads. And in my area of operations, there was only two of those. So it didn't make it too hard for when the bad guys main way of attacking you is to put an improvised explosive device on a road. It made it pretty easy for them to figure out where to hit you. Why was that the rule that you could only? Um, I think, I think it was done in good faith. I just think it wasn't thought through very well. It was done because especially where I was at, we were in the fertile crescent. Mm -hmm. Uh, so a lot of the farmers, when we'd come across an ID or something like that, if we were on the road, the first thing you do is go around it and you're going through some farmer's land. So they're trying to weigh the decisions, you know, like, right. hey, do we make these guys mad at us more and then make more terrorists pretty much? Yeah. Or do we try to avoid that and see if we can deal with the ID threat itself? But I'm sure the enemy got wind of that. Oh, yeah. Their enemy is not dumb. And I think that's one thing that kind of, I think if you're not actually out there being a trigger puller, you kind of lose sight that the enemy has a say in, in everything that you do. You know, they're not this ill-equipped, dumb people. They know what they're doing. It's their home. They, they know how to defend their home. Just like if anybody was coming to my house, I know how to defend my house better than anybody else. So I think we kind of lose sight of that. But for me, I got pulled out. And then they told my scout platoon that, hey, we're getting ready to do this big attack on the, the Javori Peninsula, which is Tigris River. Made this big peninsula. And then the whole entire peninsula was nothing but houses. They had one main road down the center. And the only way to get to it, besides going way, 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 way out of your way, was this one bridge that went across the Tigris River and went into the north side of the peninsula. Well, at that time, we used the uh, Iraqi army that was newly created by us. And a lot of those guys were also playing for the other side. Really? So when you tell them that, hey, we're getting ready to do this attack, we got to plan it with you, it gave them about three days to go tell their buddies. So that Jabori Peninsula was where AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the predecessor to ISIS today, that was their stronghold. So when they got wind of it, they brought all their fighters in. And, I mean, we were going in there with uh, tanks. I mean, I wasn't. I was going in a Humvee and then going to be on foot. But um, we had about 60 tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles that were little small tanks pretty much that were all going in there, plus 150 other vehicles of Humvees and different types. So we were going in there 250, 300 strong vehicle-wise. You know, that puts plenty of troops on the ground. But then the next kicker was that we have engineer units that have the specialized vehicles that can take the, the beating from an IED and they can detect them. They're like giant uh, mine detectors pretty much. And then they can deal with it from inside their vehicle. Well, unbeknownst to me, they had a uh, 
they couldn't play that day. They had an internal SOP that said for every week that they were on duty, they were going to take three days off and they were only on day, uh, day two. So I didn't know in combat that you got days off, but so whatever. you had none of those that day? Nope, they didn't show up. So we were waiting. We actually pushed from our FOB uh, to a forward outpost, Palawata, and we were waiting there and we were waiting and waiting. We were supposed to kick off at midnight. And by this point, it was about 1.30 in the morning and uh, the, the S2 called me in and said, hey, told me the whole thing about they're not playing today. So do you guys think you could lead everybody in there? Well, part of a scout's job is to lead when there's nobody else to lead the, the, an attacking force in so that they can make it to where they have to fight, even if that means we get torched. <laughs> so, so do you go with no headlights or are those on? Uh, at this point, the, the, the first couple tours I did, there was no headlights. But at this point now, because the IED threat was so major, you had nothing but headlights. The cop lights, you know, they got on the side of the cars, and then you had these big rails of lights of probably 13 lights all on top of your vehicle, and they went in every direction. Like, as you were driving, they knew you were coming because you looked like a... That's such a hard thing to balance then, isn't it? Yeah, and, and on top of that, they made us drive at seven miles an hour. Oh my gosh. So you're just like sitting targets. This is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. So you want to have the headlights so you can see the IEDs, but by having these massive headlights, they can see you. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that, that goes back to, and like, I don't want to get too crazy about this, but that goes back to the gosh. people making the decisions are so far away from the trigger pulling that uh, they kind of lose focus on the fact that we're good at fighting and spotting IEDs and stuff like that with our night vision on. We didn't need the headlights. We didn't need all those lights shining everywhere. That was like a command. Like, you have to do this. Oh, yeah. We had to Oh, do my it. goodness. Yeah. Like this crazy I mean, circle. Recon, everything, we do, everything we do in recon is at night. So we're really good at working at night, you know. And I, I thought that was part of recon. <laughs> Nobody like, can see you. Sleep, sleep during the day and fight at night. That's what I, was. I thought that was part of it. You sleep yeah. and no one can see you. Without the big spotlights, right? Here we are, here we are, here we are. You know what I love about you too? Can I just say this? And it brings tears to my eyes and I don't know why. I love your sense of humor. And um, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm sorry. There's nothing else. I mean, you got to have a sense of humor. But your sense of humor. And in fact, Tiffany, I don't know if you meant this to be funny. But when you sent the email to tell me about Trey's reaction to antibiotics, <laughs> I don't know if you remember what you put in there, but you said Trey has a really hard time with antibiotics since he got blowed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't well, know why. I think too, though, like I actually had a friend be like, you shouldn't say things like that. You like, thought it was so funny you have to that's like what happens like we are i think i think we've come to really live this life as a normal life as best as we can you know i think we do the best that we can to get through life we want to be happy we we are so blessed i'm still alive that's all that's all I don't know if you meant to crack me up, but that email was just so straightforward. He got blowed up and his body came. (laughs) Yes, pretty much. Yes. 
Yeah, I don't know why it makes me emotional. Maybe it's because this is such a hard, this is such a hard thing you've been dealt and the way that you're choosing to handle it, I think is so beautiful. Thank you. So do you want to hear about the individual? I don't, so want, don't to want to hear how you got blown up. I don't want to make you cry yeah. anymore. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about being blown up. Let's do that. <laughs> oh, you guys are great. Yes, please continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, I didn't want to make you cry anymore. <laughs> continue. So we start, yeah, we say yes, we'll go. I don't really have a choice. I didn't know I had a choice. I probably didn't really. They were just being nice. Um, so you get kind of that. We've been doing it as long as I had up until that point. You get kind of a sixth sense and you kind of hair stand up on the back of your neck and you kind of feel like, okay, things are going to be different on this one. And you hadn't felt that before. No, and I was platoon sergeant at this point. So now I was supposed to be of our six vehicles, I should have been in the rear of our six vehicles. But instead, I told our senior scout, I said, hey, I'm going to take the lead on this one. And I did that more because I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but I kind of had that gut feeling that something was going to happen. And I felt like I had more training than anybody on that platoon uh, by far. And so I could deal with it faster, whatever it was, I could deal with it faster. But then I got my guys together and unofficially my guys and I were nicknamed the bad boys. It's kind of cheesy, some of the stuff, but we were nicknamed bad boys because we didn't break the rules per se, but if we needed to bend a rule, extremely bend a rule to make a, them just before yeah, they broke, right? Squeaking, then we kind of laid off a little bit, but if we needed to bend a rule to get a job done, we would. So, I tell my guys, I was like, hey, you guys know that I'm, if we can do anything to prevent somebody else from getting hit or wounded, we can do it. I said, I have a weird feeling about this one. So if any of you guys don't truly feel that way, because there's a lot of guys that say they do, but they just don't. I said, nobody's going to say anything. You can go to a different vehicle and I'll pull somebody that thinks the same way. And my gunner, as cheesy as it sounds, if you've ever seen the movie Bad Boys, they have a saying to each other. They say, we ride together, we die together bad boys for life. So we kind of adopted that because it kind of fit with the job that we were doing. And when I told them that they could go and I'd go get some other guys if they wanted to, they all just looked at me and all of them said, we ride together, we die together. Like, all right. So it made me feel more comfortable about this situation. And we start driving seven miles an hour and uh, we were only 14 miles away. So it took us two hours to get to the bridge. All I'm thinking of are you as sitting ducks there. Oh yeah. I'm not going to deny that we were sitting ducks. Anyway, so we started crossing the bridge and a huge IED. It was like three, what it was, was three 155 rounds, which is about a hundred pounds of explosives in each one. Three of them were all tied together and it hit, but it was far enough away that it hit the side of the vehicle and the sides of my vehicle had that frag five armor. The underneath did not. So the side of the vehicle, the windows cracked. They're like four inches thick. So they kind of just cracked. A bunch of dirt got thrown up all over us. And of course, instantly going to battle drills, my driver hits the gas because we can't turn around. We're already halfway on the bridge. Um, and that's a choke point. As soon as we start cresting the top of the bridge, everything from the far side of the river just started shooting out. Anything you could think of was shooting at us, aside from tanks. 
Uh, I'm sure they probably got those somewhere hiding. So you got you did not see these IEDs with your big uh, spotlights. Not the first one. The first one because it was they actually had gone underneath the bridge and they placed it underneath the bridge without which actually saved us from getting what had ended up ultimately happening to me because it had a lot more dirt to push through, a lot more concrete and stuff to push through. Whereas the next one, and this is only probably about three seconds from the first one to the next one, but it seemed like a lifetime. I mean, the Humvee, when it's trying to go and it weighs 10,000 pounds, I mean, it's rattling and bolts are falling off. And I mean, you can't get over that bridge fast enough. But we're going, hauling butt in this Humvee, which hauling butt's like 35 miles an hour. And are you heading towards the people that are firing oh, yeah. at you? Yeah, we're going towards the people that are shooting everything at us. My gunner's up there rocking and rolling on a big 50, and I'm calling in a report saying that I just got hit with an IED and that we're pushing through. And oddly enough, none of the tanks decided they wanted to get on the bridge. <laughs> they could take a hit from almost anything. My homie can't, but for some reason, the tanks didn't want to get up there. But we start crossing, and then I see the second one. I actually saw the guys that were going to detonate it. I was looking off to the side, and at that time in the morning, 400 meters off, if you saw people, you knew what they were getting ready to do. So then I looked forward and I saw, I mean, it looked about the size of a refrigerator buried in the ground. And you knew it was an IED. My driver knew it. My driver started going around it. But in my head, in these three seconds, in my head, I, I just kept thinking, we got hit with an IED. Well, my platoon got hit with an IED three weeks ago. And it was the size of a softball. And I called it up. We did everything right. Started going around it. I called it up, threw a chemolite on it. And still, the last vehicle, because I wasn't the last vehicle on that one either, the last vehicle ended up hitting that IED. Luckily, nobody got hurt on that one. I well, had no first. idea they were that big. Oh, yeah. They had some big suckers. You said the size of a refrigerator? Well, yeah. It was three 155 rounds. The 155 rounds about three and a half feet tall. Oh, my gosh. I had no clue. Wide. It was meant for tanks because they knew a tank battalion was coming. Uh, so they put these things in there to be a tank killers. And like I said, my job was to make sure the tanks got to where they needed to go to fight. So I see this second one and I, my driver started going around it and I told him, hey, just drive over it. And in my head, I wasn't thinking, oh, hey, let's go get blown up. I was thinking, I just got hit with one. Lightning's not gonna strike twice. And of course it did. And uh, the Humvee got lifted up about 10 feet in the air. The engine got ripped out, got thrown up about 20 feet in the air. My driver, to the right side of my driver where all the radios are, there's a thing called doghouse underneath that. That thing blew up and knocked him out, put shrapnel up and down his right side of his body. The guy sitting behind him in the back left seat, he actually got away without a scratch. He was a private and he got out and took his dismount radio and started calling in air to support us after we got hit. My gunner ended up losing his left leg below his knee, but that saved his life because when that copper came in and hit his ankle, he fell inside the Humvee right before the engine landed on top of the turret where he was shooting out of. Uh, the shooter on my sniper team was sitting right behind me in the back right seat. He lost about 30% of his vision and got knocked unconscious. And then me, all that, when we drove over that IED, all that overpressure and everything opened up a little six inch slit, like six inches by one inch. 
and about 30, 40 pounds of molten copper came shooting in and took my left leg right off. It hit my weapon, which was sitting between my legs, and it blew that up. Luckily, the overpressure kept me pinned against my seat while the barrel got superheated, got like white hot, spun around, and then the barrel welded, half of the barrel welded itself to the inside of the Humvee, and then the other half went underneath my right knee and stopped about halfway through the bone in my, under, in my right leg. The Humvee was getting lifted up in the air and the overpressure came in. The overpressure took and it snapped my helmet chin strap and took my helmet and pushed it into my right jaw just as I started hitting my head on the roof of the Humvee. Should have been wearing my seatbelt. Here's the PSA, wear your seatbelt, right? <laughs> yeah. So it smashes my jaw into about 400 pieces on the right side, breaks my neck and my C3 and C4. So I had to have my C3, C4, and C5 fused. Uh, my arm, my left arm doesn't bend straight. I don't know if you can see that or not, but it doesn't bend straight because it snapped in half like a pencil. It was underneath this armored computer screen called a FBCB2, and it snapped that sucker. And then... Uh, my pelvis blew open to about 90 degrees. And then when I came back down inside, well, I was still inside, but once I, the Humvee landed back down, my right forearm was stuck between my body armor and ammo and everything that I carry and the armored door that doesn't move. So if you ever like press a hot dog together and the meat comes out, that's kind of what happened to my right arm. Uh, and then I got stuck in the- picture, isn't it? <laughs> I got stuck in the vehicle and my guys couldn't get the door open. So my gunner woke up in the back of the Bradley that was on the other side of the bridge and we're still getting shot at and all my guys are kind of pulling the vehicles up, trying to get the vehicles in a box so that they can go to work and get me out. But my gunner woke up and he couldn't see me in there and he was kind of like my guard dog. And so he went to stand up and fell down because his left leg had been all shattered up. And uh, so he crawled about 300 meters over this bridge He's a big, strong dude. And he pushed up this armored door while everybody else pulled it open. And he's kind of the one that helped get me out. And at this point, I was already dead. And they just kind of took my body and flopped it on the ground. But then they have to amputate your right leg to get you out. Yeah, to get me out. Good point. To get me out, you know, that the barrel of my weapon got welded to the vehicle and went into my right leg. Well, it's still white hot, so they can't grab it in the middle of combat and move it. So they took their uh, tools they had, which was ball-peen hammers and pocket knives, and they hacked away at my leg instead and, and pretty much cut my right leg off below the knee right there. Well, the left leg was already gone, right? Left leg got taken right off. How much of this do you remember? When do you black out? Uh, a lot of it, weird, but music. I'd be listening to songs and sometimes Things that I don't know that I forgot will come back into my head and it'll be like a movie that you've never seen before and it's just stuck in your head and you can't get it out. And uh, then I'll remember some things. Some of it uh, goes combined with what my guys told me had happened, right? So uh, what I remember is waking up with dirt all over the front of my Humvee because the, if you've ever seen a Humvee hood, it opens up forward. It kind of popped open, the engine went flying up, and then the, the hood kind of came back down and settled down and then slid down a little bit. So I could see the hood way down in front of me, but it was covered in dirt. And I just felt tired. 
and I was looking at my guys in the in the my window on my right side and they're like banging on the window because they couldn't get my door open and they're doing waving their hands like don't do this don't do that and I found out later they're trying to tell me don't fall asleep but I was tired and I just thought I've trained you well enough you guys can at least get let me have like a 10 minute nap that's when I died the first time and I have a weird probably don't have time for this but I, I have a weird I can sit here and talk to you guys all day but I know that Tiffany has an appointment at one. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, a lot of it's just put together by them and, and, uh, and then what I remember. When I woke up from being dead, when they brought me back, uh, I sat up. I was on the concrete at this point. I sat up. I didn't know where I was. I, didn't know, I really didn't know even who I was. I just knew that everybody's wearing the same uniform for some reason. And then as I started looking around and I started seeing injuries on me, you know, things started to jog in my head. Okay, you're in the army. And then I looked at my arm and I looked at all the blood coming down off my finger because uh, they were picking up my arm and they were cutting my sleeve open. Then I re remembered, oh yeah, you just got blown up. And then that's not quite the word I was using in my head, but. Did you notice that your leg was gone? Uh, my left leg was gone. My right leg was still somewhat attached, but it was like crooked. Did like you realize that your thing. leg was gone? Uh, I, not at that point. Not, not really. I, okay. I just knew that I was messed up. I didn't, I didn't really think what my injuries were. I knew I was messed up. And then as much as I would like to have my John Wayne moment and be like, tell my mom that I love her. <laughs> it's not quite what happened. I started kind of panicking and I couldn't breathe at that point. Once I realized what was going on, my lungs actually had fluid building up around them and I started not being able to breathe very well. And I started reaching for guys and panicking because I couldn't talk. My jaw was half hanging off oh and I couldn't really talk. And they calmed me down. And then I looked around and I saw that right in front of me, I can see tracers and the bad guys shooting at me. And that's not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to have, if somebody gets hit, there's supposed to be a vehicle pulls up in front and blocks off so people can work. So I'm trying the best I can with all the injuries to start telling my guys to move vehicles. Little did I know they actually were moving vehicles. They just, I mean, we were on a bridge. They couldn't get around as fast as they normally would. So they're trying not to knock us into the river as they were getting around. And uh, they called me down and they said, hey, you're all right. We're moving vehicles there. You trained us good relax and as soon as they did that i think i died again for the se for the second time i at least went unconscious i ended up dying three times which in itself is is kind of crazy because normally they only give you like two two times to die i didn't know there was a limit <laughs> there's a bunch of other injuries they got to get everybody outside of dodge they can't screw around with a guy that's most likely just going to be brain dead anyways now what do you mean then after two times like after the third so normally when they toe tag you well, I didn't have toes to put them on, but when they body tag you, they, uh, they write, like, if you died or if they tourniqueted you or whatever, they write the time down. And normally, if you can die twice, the third time, they're like, all right, well, he's a lost cause, so let's move on to somebody else. So they revived you twice. three times? Three yeah, times they got revived, yeah. Twice okay. in the field. Twice in the field by once, my medic. And then once in blood. And then... In blood? Yeah. Yeah. In the... yeah. Oh, yeah. So I got once I got revived in, in the actual field field. 
The second time was after they moved me to that thought that forward outpost, Palawada. They moved me there and they revived me there. And then the third time was at uh, in Balad. It's, so. Wow. Yeah. Tiffany, when did you find out about what had happened? <clears throat> so it was that night. Um, I was, we weren't married, so the military didn't see me as family. So my mother-in-law had called me. Um, I was in a Bible study and we were just finishing up and she called and uh, I thought, oh, I'll call her back. And then we were heading out and she called me again and I just knew. Like I knew something was wrong. But at that point, she said that, you know, Travis has been injured because she'll, she won't call him Trey because his name is Travis. She named him Travis. Travis has been injured. And I said, what? Like, is he okay? So she actually just came for a visit and we had kind of talked a little bit about it, um, what had happened and that and uh, her story. And she just says, the only thing that sticks out in my mind is you just kept saying, is he alive? Like, is he alive? I don't care. Like, is he alive? But at that point, they only told us that he had lost a leg. Okay. So we got off the phone and I did not hear what was um, actually wrong until the next day because I think they had to, you know, they have probably have a process of figuring what really what happened and what's wrong. So when she called me, the list obviously just went on and on and on. Yeah. So that was hard. Um, but uh, she was really great and um, they got flown out to Walter Reed. So on the 11th of February, he was, or maybe the 10th, no, the 11th of February that he was able to, well, they first sent him from the log to Germany and they were trying to figure out if he could make the flight or what was happening. And at that point I was a little worried because I didn't have a passport. So I probably wouldn't have been able to get out to Germany fast enough just because it takes a while to get a passport. But I went and got my picture taken and try to do the things that I needed to do to get over there. But they felt it was urgent enough they needed to send him back to the States. So they flew him in to Walter Reed in Maryland, um, February 11th. That's quick. Yeah, normally it's a month. They normally try to keep you in Germany and stabilize you for a month. But I was so bad off and, and uh, my mom, they didn't think they were gonna be able to get her out to Germany in time. They didn't know if I was going to live or die or if I was going to even know who people were. So they made the decision, well, let's at least try to get them to the state store so you can see them. Were you in induced coma? Yes. So they flew, um, the Army flew his mother and his two sisters out February 11th to meet them. Um, but since I wasn't family, um, my mother-in-law was really diligent about trying to get me out there. So the foundation, the Yellow Ribbon Foundation, <clears throat> which is an amazing organization, they were able to get me a ticket for February 12th. So I got on an airplane February 12th. This was the first time I actually met his second sister, which was an interesting story in itself, but that's for another time. And um, I stayed, I fell asleep that night, woke up early the next morning to go see him because they don't really have, he was in the surgical ICU, so you can't stay the night. So when the visiting hours opened up, I was there ready to go. So when I first saw him, 
I was able to see through a window. The nurses were kind of in messing with them, so I could kind of get like a picture of it. Were you prepared? Yeah, yeah no, I don't think you ever can be prepared for seeing the man that you were you actually learning about amputees though when you're yeah we were learning about amputees but you'd like talk about it you see pictures you know i don't know it wasn't the same but it's also hard thinking like this really tough man you know like he's he can do anything and just seeing somebody you love in that situation is hard so i don't really think i really had any preconceived notions in life really I, i don't really see what it would be like. I just kind of went in there like taking it in. So he obviously had, he had most of his femurs, um, but I had to put, they had wound backs on the end. So amputees, they don't actually close. So he was open um, and had a wound back on the end, sucking out infection and things like that, dirt or whatever was in it. And he had an external fixator on his left elbow. So there was wire sticking out of his left um, arm. He had a wound back on the right because he had the fasciotomy on the right. He had a, a collar on because obviously they couldn't fix him at that point because at this point he had a blood infection. He was septic. So they weren't going to do any surgeries, especially on the neck with he had an infection. And he had a, a trach in because his mouth was wired shut um, because of the fractured jaw. And so I went in and I wanted him to know that it was going to be okay. Like I was there. Uh, I wanted him to know that things would be the best that they could and I would be there because I didn't want him to think that I wasn't. So I walked in, you know, with my smile, tried to talk to him. Well, he was starting to get agitated because he was mouth was wired shut. He was trached. He, all the extremities were hung up by something. And so he started to thrash around. And so his neck was still broke at this time. So I'm like, no, 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 don't out. We'll talk about it later. And I had passed out one time <laughs> in my life and I knew it. I was like, oh man, it's coming. And so I thought I need to get out of here. So this is kind of funny. I, uh, uh, I, I said, I got to go to the bathroom. That's the last thing I remember. Dark. But that's not the funniest part of the story. And I think God has like the best sense of humor because in a situation that was not funny, my face. She was face down in my crotch. <laughs> All the nurses came out and were like, what? No. What is she doing? And my sister-in-law at the time was like, uh i don't know and she realized that i was limp so i woke up from passing out landing on him and i could feel him like kind of punching at my head a little bit to try to like get me and i thought oh my gosh so i obviously sat down had something to eat because it was super early in the morning but it was quite the response but i also was so grateful that we had that because it was something that was funny in a situation that was so not funny. How long did it take for you to wake up, Trey? And did you understand when you woke up? I don't know really, to be honest, how long it took me to wake up, but I do, I do remember when she walked in the first time my mom actually told me, she was like, do you know where you're at? And I couldn't respond other than to barely move my head and no. And then she said, well, you got, wounded and you lost your legs and I looked down and I had a blanket on and I looked down and I could see okay there's no legs there so I was like whatever I wanted to talk and I was trying to talk to my mom I was like, obviously 
the fixators they put on your jaw work really well and I couldn't move my mouth. So she knew though, she goes, are you worried about Tiff? And then I shook my head, yeah. And, and I was because I knew a guy that was married for 12 years, lost his pinky finger in a gunfight and his wife of 12 years divorced him because she didn't like the way that people looked at him when he would talk. Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's kind of the, the service member's fault, though. I mean, <laughs> we, we tend to marry the first thing that says hi to us. <laughs> well, I'm glad that your story worked out okay. <laughs> so it's probably not love at first sight. So. Your story could have taken a whole different turn. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, my gosh. Right when, right when my mom said, are you worried about Tiff, was when Tiff walked in and like she said, she's got this smile that when she's being genuine and you know things are going to be good, she has this, she, she looks like the original, like, Jack Nicholson Joker. <laughs> like, she has that Joker smile from Jack Nicholson. And it, <laughs> it, it was good. How long did you have to stay at Walter Reed? Oh, man. I was there until mid-April. So he was in the surgical ICU probably for a month because of the septic, because he was septic. And because every other day he'd have to go in for a washout, which that's when his limbs kept getting shorter and shorter. And I remember asking a doctor like, oh my gosh, because at this point I was worried about prosthetics. I wasn't really, in my mind, I wasn't thinking he's going to die. I was thinking, oh, is he going to be able to be functional? And when I asked him that, he goes, I don't even know if he's going to live. And I was, it was like, what? course he's gonna live but I think that was the first real gut punch because at that point too they didn't know he had a really terrible Glasgow coma scale so they didn't know if he was even going to be able to function in uh, the world you know he had such a severe brain injury they didn't know at that point what his function if it was going to be I guess my mom asked the doctor oddly enough the first doctor that I had at Walter Reed when I got transferred to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, that guy ended up transferring there and becoming my doctor there too. So he kind of told me a little bit about, he said, the first time he spoke to my mom, he's like, your mom's got some weird questions at some weird times. And one of my mom's first questions was, well, since he doesn't have legs, how is he going to drive? Like of all the questions you can ask, <laughs> she asked how I was going to drive. And of course he said, well, there's ways they can modify the vehicle for him to drive, but same thing he said, you know, you've got to be prepared that he's probably not going to make it through this thing. And if he does, he's not going to know what a car is, let alone who you are, or who he is. He'll probably be uh, in a assisted living for the rest of his life. So uh, then I think that's when it hit my mom. And then it started taking its toll on my mom, I think, a lot at that point. Uh, she's, she's probably, you talk about the family, you know, my wife, I can joke with her about this stuff because she's like the strongest woman I've ever met. Uh, both physically and mentally and but my mom is quite the opposite and my mom just went from I don't know her version of being healthy to just downgraded like crazy physically mentally everything just went to crap as soon as I got blown up and she got told that that stuff I wouldn't say this to a lot of people with the double amputee, but can I say it to you? Because I think you have a good sense of humor if I say you're a walking miracle. 
I'm a, ro- I'm a rolling miracle. <laughs> <You're> rolling. <laughs> you know, that's so true. It is true because looking from where he was on that day to now, we are so blessed. Like, I honestly believe that Trey is here still for a reason. Like, he impacts so many lives on a, such a positive way. And I don't think our journey is done yet. Oh. You know, I feel like he has, and I think we both together, our story is really special, maybe just to me, but I, I think that he can help people get through things that are hard because he's done it. And we're just so, we're so blessed with everything that we've had from that moment on. I feel like we, we have a great life. Have you guys done any speaking engagements? Uh, we used to. At first, we, we did, probably did at least once a month. Things are kind of crazy. Is that because you want to hear about this stuff. That's why we thank you for doing this, because we think people still need to hear it. Because it still happens, you know. But I think this war has desensitized people to what troops actually go through. Like, to them, it's just like a video game. They watch the stuff happen on TV, and that's it. But to the troops, I mean, it's, it's their life. That's what they live. And so many people got desensitized to it that we used to talk, like I said, at least me, I would talk every month for probably the first two or three years. And then all of a sudden, people just don't want to hear about it anymore. You know, they want to pay a football player that spent two years in the league and didn't do much of anything, $50,000 to speak, but somebody that actually has something to say and something to make you feel good at. Because even though my story has to do with getting blown up and stuff like that, to me, I always try to frame it as positive. I just get the biggest kick out of every time you two say he got blown up. Well, I mean, that's what happened. <laughs> that's another problem. Is like Why people is that don't... so funny to me that he got blown <laughs> Because we have changed, and since I've been blown up, I have noticed that things have changed from being able to just say what you want to now you have to dumb it down or or numb it so that you make the person you're talking to feel good about it. Like when we go to restaurant, well, when we used to go to restaurants, the hostess would we just want to go to a restaurant, a movie theater. Yeah. The hostess would say how many, and if it was me and my buddy, I'd say one and a half. And the hostesses didn't know what to say. Oh, my gosh. And then I got told one time towards the end of me saying that stuff that, hey, although what you said might be funny to you, you made our hostess feel weird. So then oh my was, gosh, you then I got turned into this whole, okay, I guess I can't make myself feel alive because somebody else felt weird. You've yeah. got to be kidding me. Oh. What is up with people? Bunch of marshmallows, right? <laughs> when did you two get married? Uh, oh, that's actually probably the reason I got blown up, though. Dude. Oh, come on. So biggest... Every time. <laughs> the biggest superstitious people on planet Earth are athletes and military service members. You don't get married when you go on leave. You just don't do that. Oh, I thought you were going to say you don't get married when you get blown up. <laughs> Uh, no, no. Or that too. No, you got to hurry up and get married after you get blown up. So I was getting, I was actually slated to go on leave like a couple of weeks after this uh, big battle that we were getting ready to go do. And Tiff, we were planning on not getting married until she graduated. And then Tiff says, hey, 
we have to get married when you come here on leave. I'm like, whoa, hey, no, we can't do that. She's like, yes, if you want to marry me, that's when we're getting married. I'm like, oh, crap. We just sank my freaking... And then a few days later, lo and behold, badoosh, I get blown up. Well, I do feel like, obviously, we all know that's not why he got blown up. But <laughs> but I was like, I need to marry him on mid to her leave. I don't know why. Like, I never wanted to do that. And I also think, like, maybe that was God's way of prompting, like, she's real. Maybe, in a way, it let him know that I was real about him. Because, I mean, military is hard. Like, lots of people come back without somebody get Dear John letters or, but I never wanted to get married that way initially, but I just had this push to really, you know, do it. And I mar- I got my wedding dress the weekend before he was injured. Which and he so, screwed that up too. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> don't mind. Not him. the wedding dress. I mean, the wedding dress was great. <laughs> Let me tell you why she screwed it up. What? I'm going to tell you why you screwed it okay, up. Okay, let's hear it. So after I get blown up, Montel Williams contacts me and says, hey, we want to do your wedding, but let's not tell your wife. He's another one of the people that, that thinks like you do, like the, the family and the people that are closest to you probably get impacted more than the person that actually got blown up. How come uh, it's not so, like so to, I don't know. I just, so he <laughs> wanted to give us this wedding. Well, we go on his final show that he has and he, I knew it was coming. I don't know if Tiff knew it was coming, but I knew what was coming. Um, I told Tiff, I was like, well, they just want to thank you for being awesome. She's like, okay. And then they're like, well, we're going to give you this wedding. And then we're going to send you to St. Croix for your honeymoon. Which, in hindsight, if you ever been to St. Croix, it's a great <laughs> island, but it's all steep hills. And being in a wheelchair on a steep hill, <laughs> I mean, she had her work cut I out for her. Trying to the work out of Every time we had to go eat, we had to go a quarter mile up a straight steep hill to go eat. So, I mean, it was... It was awesome. She got to work off the calories she was about to eat. Right. It was good. But he offered to her, he said, I just got married. And my wife had five dresses made and three of them she didn't wear. Do you want one? Because she's about your size. And Tiff's like, nope, I got my own for nine ninety five from Ross. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say like David's bridal. It actually was David's <laughs> Oh, okay. Just trying to make it more funny. Oh, okay. I don't know. I guess I just, I don't know. I felt like it was okay. It was like a custom-made Vera Wang dress. I just feel really bad. I don't, I don't know. I am a simple girl. We don't like taking things. It's actually it's true. It's hard. We're it's not. hard taking things from people that are so kind. So it was fine. The wedding dress was great that I wore. Trey, I'm going to ask you uh I don't know if it's a hard question. Were your injuries worth it? Yes. Why? That's actually probably one of the better questions too. Well, for, for me, it's for a lot of reasons. Um, first and foremost, like a lot of people, they look at the war in Iraq and they're like, oh, we went under false pretenses and we did all this. But I don't really care what the pretenses were false or not. I met a lot of people in Iraq, Iraqis, that they tell you these stories about pretty much having their, you know, the previous regime's foot on their neck all the time. They couldn't do anything. Like, met this one family and the girls, the dad would never let the girls go outside because he was afraid that one of the sons, they lived right right next to the green zone where the sons' palaces were, that uh, one of those sons would see them, the girls out there, you know, and they didn't treat the girls very good. So, I mean, I, I've met thousands of people that 
are thankful. And yeah, they're in a state of war still to this day, but the ones that are in the pockets that don't have anything happening to them, like it's a different life for them. They didn't know what freedom was ever. So that in itself, I mean, I joined the military for that reason. Like I want to help other people feel the freedoms that we used to have. And then what Tiff said about that I got blown up for a reason and that I was saved by God for a reason. I got to be honest, at first I, I didn't care. Like, I was like, God, I know you got your, your plan, but maybe it's time to take me and let me go to sleep here for a second. But then once she kind of got it into me that, hey, life's going to be good. I'm not going anywhere. And then I kind of felt like I'm going to live my life for Tiff and my family. And then she kept telling me over the first few months that, hey, I'm not the reason why God saved you. Like, there's you, a bigger reason. I know this is going to sound dumb. And I think, I don't know if Tiff really believes this so much, but I think one of those reasons is, I used to coach high school football up until about August, this past August. And a lot of football players, you ever know football players, a lot of them are kind of on that edge of being good kids or bad kids. For some reason, football is that sport that draws the bad kids. They're not all bad, don't get me wrong. Just if you're going to get a bad kid in a sport, nine times out of ten is coming to football. And for some reason, I am really, really, really good at relating to those kind of kids or kids that are struggling. They could be good kids, but they're just struggling. I always got those kids in, in, I call them kids, but I mean, they're men in the army. Every time I got, we got new guys, they knew I was good with those kids. I mean, the gunner that was my bodyguard, he stole a car his first week in the army. <laughs> like an army vehicle or a... No, like a civilian's car. Okay. Luckily he was, very physically fit and could outrun the cops but but I mean I brought him down I brought him back to the police station after he called me first thing he wanted to do was call me and tell me what happened and uh I kept him out of jail but I knew how to relate to these kids and I knew how to kind of get them straight and that guy is a good I mean the dude what last year or was a year before he just won an Emmy for he's a graphic guy on the tv stuff on MLB network so he went from this guy from central Los Angeles that stole a car when he got in the army to, I'm just good at that. I don't know why. I just, I think it's because when I was growing up, I was kind of a bad kid, but I paid attention and I knew that it was me that was doing it. Not anybody else's fault. It was my choices. So I kind of help kids understand that it's their choices, regardless of their circumstance, it's their choice, whether or not they're going to fall into the, whatever bad is or not. So football for me has been my outlet on how to reach these these kids. I've half butt tried other ways, but football's like my passion. Like I, I love it's the closest thing to the way the army's run is, is a football team. And those kids, there's a one example that I like to use, and this has happened multiple times, but one of my I was running backs coach at Jordan High School for a while. Uh, there was a kid, I won't tell his name because it's probably some weird legal issue. There was a kid <laughs> that uh well let's back up the first running back i had there i actually still keep in contact with uh as a matter of fact his brother is the one that built our house that we're in now he's running back up at weaver state right now i was told hey this guy is a total jerk and that wasn't the word that they used and he's super selfish and you're never going to get him to do anything he became best running back in the state two years in a row since i got there and it wasn't I'm not saying that was because of him. It's because of him. He made the choices to become this guy. 
I just happened to be the catalyst that made him make these choices. You know, the, the, there was a story written about me and he said something. He's the only guy ever to get me to almost cry. And it was because he said, they asked him, we're going to state championship. Why do you, what's different about this year that makes you run so hard? And he said, I run so hard because my running back coach is awesome and he's got no legs. So I run twice as hard so that I'm running for the both of us. And that kind of, I don't know, at that time it was rough for me, so it was hard for me to get past that. But he's a great kid. But the kid that came on after him the next couple years was actually a super stud athlete, but he was going to quit. All the coaches, and I mean all the coaches, had, I don't know what their deal was with him, but they just went after him like, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's like a dogs. When one dog goes after a piece of meat, all the other dogs go after it. And that's kind of what it felt like to me and then this kid's gonna quit so the head coach didn't want him to quit so the head coach came to me and said hey will you take this kid and i said yeah yeah i'll take him you can probably make him a running back i already have a running back but whatever and within a couple of weeks this kid took the first ring running back spot and was doing really good and weeks later his mom came down at one of the games and uh she grabbed me and gave me a note, and I use that note as my resume now. <laughs> it said, uh, long story short, it said her son's name is uh, every sport to include baseball and everything. He, his coaches don't seem to relate well with him. He, and he was a genius. He was literally on the scale a genius. Like, whatever the genius scale is, he was at the top of it. So he's also a good athlete, which, you know, they're kind of awkward to have that those two things yeah. together. I think that's why the other coaches just couldn't relate. They thought he was being a jerk or thought, you know, he, he was better than them or whatever. And I never thought that. I just thought he was being a kid. Anyways, this note says he would come home from every sport crying. I'm sure he didn't want me to know that, but she told him anyways. that He came home from every sport crying and didn't want to go back and he wanted to quit football. And then within a few days of him becoming a running back, he would come home laughing and joking about things and telling her things that I would say to him and just loving the sport and loving life again. And she wanted to thank me. She said that her, her and her husband for the last three years had been praying for a miracle and hard to take this, but she said I was her miracle. And to me, even if I got saved from being blown up to save one kid, that's worth it. So that one note right there in itself, beyond anything else, to me, is worth it. And then I got three awesome boys. I've seen them on Facebook. They're cute. Yeah, yes. Three awesome boys out of this deal. And uh, an awesome wife who, man, she wants me to work out this day. You, oh, you missed a workout. You're getting fat. <laughs> no, I do not say that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, those are my words, I guess. Let me ask you one last question. For both of you, you can answer it together. You can answer it separate. What does America mean to you? Are you going to answer your side first, or do you want me to do it? Go ahead. All right. I like the question, especially now. So America. We need it now, don't we? We need it yeah. now. To me, America means the freedom to choose. Like, we're the beacon in the world. I've, I've traveled all over the world. And everywhere you go, 
if you talk to a normal person from that country, it doesn't matter if it's a what we consider a free country or one that's not. They all say the same thing. You know, they, they you be talking about any subject and then something will come out of their mouth to the effect of, well, at least you get the ability to choose that. And that's what America means to me. Is that's the place where you get to choose your, your own destiny and everybody has the same, as much as some think they don't, everybody has the equal opportunity to do what they want, essentially, you know, as for, within legal means. If you want to be a billionaire, I mean, I saw a story about the youngest woman just became a billion, self-made billionaire at 31 years old. And she went from nothing. She went from eating ramen noodles when she was 24 in college to at 31, she's a billionaire, self-made. So you can do that in America as much as a lot of people think you can't. I think some people just become pessimistic towards everything and they think it's always somebody else's fault. But to me, it's still, you get the right to choose. This is the way America was created and the way America should be. America is all about choice. You have the choice to do what you want. As soon as you start getting into where governments tell you that you can't do something that doesn't hurt somebody else or you can't do something that they don't like because they grew up a different way than you did, then you're getting into a different type of government, a different type of country. But still, although maybe a little bit lessened, America is choice. And people like me who lost our legs, this is one reason why I can have a, a joking stance about this. I chose that. I chose to become a scout knowing my dad was severely wounded and he didn't lose his legs, but he did the same job. I knew what I was getting into and I still chose to do that. You know, nobody makes these people do that. And that's what makes our military and our freedoms all that much better is because for the most part of our country, people chose to fight and die if necessary or get maimed or whatever to give people the choice to do what they want. And America to me obviously is um, one of the best countries in the world. I obviously believe that one because of the freedoms, but I came from nothing. I came from poverty, but I was able to become a physical therapist and I did that with hard work. And I think America is the land of opportunity. And I think we also have so many service members that will fight for that. And so for that, I'm forever thankful. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, Trey, for sharing your American story. Thank you for having us. Thank Appreciate you. It. I had no clue this podcast episode was going to be so much fun. And the credit belongs entirely to Tiff and Trey. We talked about some heavy stuff, but their ability to handle the life-altering injuries of Trey with humor and grace is phenomenal. That wraps up Season 1 of We the People, Our American Story. Season 2 begins Friday, April 2nd, and what a lineup of guests I have already. But that doesn't mean I'm entirely disappearing for two weeks. Come back on Tuesday, March 23rd and see what I mean. It has been a pleasure to share this time with you and to share some truly remarkable American stories. If you have enjoyed this season, leave a rating, and if you have a few extra minutes, a comment is even better. Subscribe, tell your friends and family, and until next Tuesday, see you then.